Hey, this is Pastor Dave from Cross Point Church. Thank you so much for checking out our podcast today. We are a church on the move to redeem people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. You can learn more about us by checking out our website at crosspointwestdallas.com. You can watch one of our services by going to our YouTube channel at Cross Point Church West Dallas. More than anything, we'd love to meet you in person and for you to be our guest on a Sunday morning at 10 a.m. We meet every Sunday at 11,000 West Oklahoma Avenue in the great city of West Dallas. We would love to see you soon. And may God use this message to give power and grace to you today. Called the Promised King. For the next couple of weeks, we're going to look at the first coming of Jesus Christ into the world from the Gospel of Matthew. And this is really the origin story of Jesus. Some of you superhero geeks are like into origin stories and stuff. Well, this is the origin story of Jesus Christ. That's what Matthew gives us in the first couple chapters of his Gospel. And uh, the, the title of today's message is The King's Lineage. And right now someone's thinking, what could be more boring than that? Let's just spend 30 minutes talking about genealogy. My grandpa got really into genealogy after my grandma died. And uh, he spent years uh, gathering data and developing his research. He even went on uh, multiple cross-country road trips to interview distant relatives. In fact, uh, when I was around the age of 17, my grandpa invited me on one of these trips and there is nothing I wanted to do less than drive across the country with my grandpa and interview distant relatives. And so I turned him down. And looking back on that, I I realized it was a huge mistake to turn him down because he didn't have many years left at that point. Since my grandpa died, I have not taken up the mantle and discovered the joys of genealogy, but I have grown to appreciate the genealogical records that we have in the Bible, and in particular, this genealogical record that Matthew gives us at the beginning of his gospel. It's, it's quite unique, as you're going to see. We're not going to go through all the names. I mean, he covers 28 generations, 14 generations from Abraham to David, 14 generations from David to Jesus. We're, we're not going to cover all of those. But one thing that Matthew's genealogy tells us is that Jesus is descended from kings. There are 15 kings named in this genealogy. Half, about half of them are, were considered good kings, even though most of those good kings did some really bad things. And we'll talk a little bit about that today. The other half of those kings were exceedingly wicked in God's eyes. But nonetheless, Jesus is descended from a line of kings But before we get into some of these other names that are listed here, we really need to ask, why is this genealogy here? Like, like why start your your story of Jesus with a genealogy? And the reason Matthew includes this family record is to show his Jewish readers that Jesus was a real man who uh, came from a real family that had been preserved through many generations dating all the way back to Abraham. And as we've seen, as we've been working our way through the book of Genesis over the last couple months, is God did, I mean, all that he could to preserve Abraham's family through hardship and hostility and brokenness. God preserved the family line of Abraham from generation to generation to generation. God's grace abounded 
But even more than that, genealogies matter <clears throat> because in ancient times, your genealogy was basically your credentials. It's how you showed someone that you were a person of value or influence. And that's not always the case today. Today, when we want to show someone who we are and what we're capable of, what do we, what do we give them? We, we give them our resume, right? We give them our resume so that they can see who we are, what we've accomplished, you know, what we're all about. You know, we're, here's where I went to school. I, I, here's what I studied. I received some honors and awards. I'm talking about someone else now. I, um, I, I worked for these companies or I've played with these musicians. I've developed these programs. Here's what I can do. And we look at someone's resume to determine whether or not we want to we wanna start a conversation with that person and get to know them and maybe, maybe find out if they're a good fit for our business, for our company, for, you know, our department. And the reason we use resumes and not genealogies is because we live in a highly individual, individualized culture. We, that's just where we live in America. We're a highly individualized culture. But in, ancient, in the ancient Near East, it was a communal culture. It was not a highly individualized culture. And even in some modern-day places, people don't really care about your education or experience. They care about where you came from or, or really more who you came from. They care about your family. They want to know about your family. You see, to most American employers, what you studied and what you've accomplished in the workplace uh, is, is the best indicator of what you have to offer. It's the best indicator of your value. But to a lot of other people, it makes more sense to look at your family to measure your credibility. Like who they are and, and what they've accomplished and how they raised their kids and their reputation in the community and, and so on. And some of you, I, you're probably thinking right now, man, I'm glad that's not the case today. Because if, it were, if, it was my, if you were looking at my family, you would not be impressed with me. And others of you are thinking, man, I, I wish I could go back to that because I come from a great family line. But, but here's another interesting fact about ancient genealogies is that people would be very selective about who they included and who they did not include in those genealogies. You could actually leave people off your genealogy and then show someone your genealogy as, as a way to show them, here's what I can do. Here's what I'm about. And, and guess, who, guess who you would leave off your family genealogy? Guess who you would leave off the list? The people you weren't proud of. Obviously. And isn't that kind of what we do with our resumes? I mean, if you guys, I, I thought it might be fun, like if, if everyone submitted their resume to me, not because not you're looking for a job here, but because it would be just such a fun way to get to know all of you. I would learn so much. I'd be, it would be so fascinating to learn about your, where you went to school, where you grew up, what, you know, your jobs and, and uh, your awards and honors and all of those things. I, I would love to see those. And I was actually thinking this last week, you know, it'd be kind of a fun small group activity to each week, someone from your small group, and feel free to steal this idea, someone from your small group brings in their resume, and you, you give it to everyone ahead of time, and then, you, and then everyone in your small group gets to interview you and ask you about, but, but here's the catch. You can't leave anything off. You have to put every single job you've ever had, all the, all the schools you went to, um, it, you know, if you flunked out of that school, you've got to put that in there. If you were suspended academically for a semester, we got to know that. 
You know, and then we can start asking questions like, oh, I see you worked at Hardee's for two weeks in 1990. Tell us more about that. Um, or, or maybe you're going to say something like, wait, you've never been fired from a job? All right, you're definitely not a good fit for this small group. I'm sorry. Go join some other small group of perfect people. But it would just be fun to celebrate the wins in your life and, sell, and, and laugh at each other. You know what I mean? I think that'd be a lot of fun. So my small group, maybe we'll do that. I don't know. But um, it'd be a fun way to get to know each other. But here's, here's the point I'm trying to make is that every single one of us, we, we, when we're going to give our resume to a prospective employee, employer, we are, we are not going to put all of our jobs on there. We are going to, there's definitely quite a few jobs I'm leaving off of my resume because I'm only going to put things on my resume that make me look good. And you are only going to put things on your resume that make you look good because that's what we do. We're selling, we're selling ourselves. And in the same way, many ancient people would leave off that one uncle, that one brother or cousin who brought shame to the family, they would leave them off of their genealogy. Because that, that one family member can ruin your credentials if you're in, in living in the ancient Near East. You could have people expunged from your family record. And that is why this record of Jesus' family line is so fascinating. Because Matthew goes out of his way to include some people and some names that do not make Jesus look good. And we're going to look at a couple of those. It, listen, if you were writing, if you were writing about someone who you wanted to persuade people was worthy of following and worshiping, and you were writing this book to first century Jews, you were writing your gospel to first century Jews to convince them that Jesus is the King of Kings, He's the King of the universe, the promised Messiah. You would want to be sure to include only people of pure Jewish lineage. And you would only include the best names. The names that you would be proud to associate with. Wouldn't you? Which is why Matthew's choice to include women in his genealogy is very curious. It is not normal to find the names of women in any ancient genealogies. We've already been through the book of Genesis. We've read a bunch of genealogies. I mean, we haven't read all of the genealogies, but we've already been presented with the genealogy from um, Adam to to Noah, and then from Noah to Abram, and then from Abram to Jacob and Esau and all their descendants, and out of dozens and dozens and dozens of names, I can only find the name of, of one woman who's mentioned, maybe two, out of all of those names, just in passing, Because people did not care who your mother was. They only cared who your father was. The father was the head of the family. His name was carried on, not the mother's. In ancient Jewish culture, women had practically no legal rights. A woman was uh, treated more as property than a a person. Uh, She was owned by her father until he transferred ownership to the husband. And women were assigned value according to how much they could produce and raise offspring especially sons, so that the father's family name could be carried on for another generation. And that is why the appearance of four women, in particular, in Matthew's genealogy of Jesus is kind of shocking, actually. 
And it's not only that Matthew included women, it's the kinds of women he named. Listen to this quote from William Barclay. If Matthew had ransacked the pages of the Old Testament for improbable candidates, he could not have discovered four more incredible ancestors for Jesus Christ. Listen to the first three verses of Matthew chapter 1 again. This is a record of the ancestors of Jesus the Messiah, a descendant of David and of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac was the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. There's no need to mention Tamar's name. No other, no other uh, gospel writer, New Testament writer mentions Tamar in any genealogy. It's just Matthew. And there were two Tamars in Israel's history. One was the victim of a horrible crime, and the other was a perpetrator of a horrible crime. And guess which one this one? This Tamar is not the victim of, of the crime. Tamar's story is wrapped up in Judah's story, which we didn't read when we went through Genesis, but it's found in Genesis 38. And I'm going to give you the, basically the PG version today. If you want to read all the gory details, you can read Genesis 38 later. But I'm going to give you the, the summary here. In Genesis 38, Judah leaves his brothers. Remember, Jacob had 11 brothers. Judah was the fourth brother. He's the one who decided, hey, let's, let's not kill Joseph. Let's sell him. And, and Judah is the one. He leaves his brothers, and he goes to take a pagan-worshipping Canaanite woman to be his wife. And he has three sons with her. And the wife Judah takes for his firstborn son is this woman, Tamar. And at this point, I'm going to leave out some very dark, shameful things that Judah's sons get into. And both of his sons are struck down by God and killed for what they did. And long story short, Tamar deceives her father-in-law, Judah, into sleeping with her by disguising herself as a prostitute. And lo and behold, three months later, it's discovered that Tamar is pregnant. Judah doesn't even know it's his child. He's right, he, he wants to have uh, Tamar burned alive. And then he finds out it is his child, and he's ashamed, and he takes responsibility. And here's what's amazing about all that. God chose to preserve the line of his righteous king, Jesus, through Tamar. <laughs> Why? Why Tamar? Why not Judah's own wife? Why even choose Judah? Judah, I mean, Joseph was the faithful son. Joseph is the son God raised up to be a kind of savior of his people, the son who God used to do great things. Judah is an embarrassment, and so is Tamar. So why does Matthew have to remind us that Jesus is the descendant of Tamar? Why not tell us about Sarah or Rebecca or Leah who also were in the line of Jesus. Why in telling the story of the birth of the Savior of the world would you want to dredge up one of the creepiest stories in the whole Bible? You will never find the story of Judah and Tamar in a kid's storybook Bible, I promise you. And yet here it is buried underneath the story of Christmas. And then we get to verse 5 of Matthew chapter 1. Salmon was the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, and Boaz was the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. 
Now, Rahab and Ruth uh, are, are remembered for some good things, but neither one of them are Jews. Jesus has women in his family line who aren't even kind of Jewish. Rahab was a pagan living in Jericho, and not only is she not a Jew, she was also a prostitute. And God uses Rahab to preserve the line of his righteous king, Jesus. And then there's Ruth. Ruth has a whole book of the Bible written about her. But Ruth also was not a Jew. She was from Moab. She was a Moabitess. What's, what's wrong with that? Well, in Genesis 19, there's another disturbing story about Abraham's nephew, Lot. And Lot had two daughters. And after uh, Lot and Abraham split up, Lot took his daughters to live up in the mountains in a cave. And some of you already know where this is going. And once again, I'm leaving out some details here that I'd rather not share. But both of Lot's daughters have a child with their father. And his firstborn daughter na- uh, names her son Moab. And from Moab comes the nation, uh, the Moabites. And God curses the Moabites so that no Moabite was allowed to enter the Jewish assembly for worship. Ruth is a Moabite. And she's one of Jesus' ancient mothers. She's a foreigner from a cursed nation, a nation born out of incest. And God chooses to carry on the royal line of his righteous king through her. So, I mean, that's pretty, that's pretty shocking. But I think the next, the next verse is even the most, this is, this is the most surprising one to me. Obed was the father of Jesse. Jesse was the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother was Bathsheba, the widow of Uriah. Now, Matthew could have just said, and David was the king, uh, David the king was the father of Solomon, and Solomon was the father of Rehoboam, and on and on and on. But he doesn't, he doesn't say that. Matthew pauses to remind us that King David, who's the most celebrated king in all of Israel's history, made a tragic decision that would change the rest of his life and ruin his family. It tore his family apart. Matthew could have pointed us to King David the warrior or King David the shepherd or King David the man after God's own heart, but instead he points us to King David the adulterer and the murderer. Like, why in the world is Uriah's name here? Uriah had nothing to do with the birth of Jesus. The only reason he names Uriah is to remind his Jewish readers that David betrayed him and used him And then he just eliminated him. Uriah is the victim of David's insatiable lust. That's that's it. And in the original text, Bathsheba's name isn't even mentioned, just Uriah's name. It just says uh, Solomon, whose uh, mother was the wife of Uriah. The only reason Matthew would put that parentheses in there is to remind us that King David was not that good. (laughs) King David messed up royally. And Matthew reminds his readers that by talking about Uriah. Bathsheba, the widow of Uriah. 
I mean, Jesus, great. He's telling us, look, Jesus' family line is full of pagans and idolaters and adulterers and even murderers. His great, 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 great grandma is Bathsheba. Nobody names their daughter Bathsheba. Maybe because of how it sounds or maybe because that name will always be associated with scandal and shame and brokenness. I mean, why bring up any of these women? There are plenty of godly Jewish women that are descended from Jesus or that were Jesus' descendants that Matthew could have included in his opening chapter. So why go out of your way to highlight the women who make us cringe and blush with embarrassment? Why go out of your way to show us how dysfunctional Jesus' extended family is? Here's what I think. God could have at any time, he could have rescinded his promise. Remember the promise he made to Abraham? I'm going to make, a, I'm going to make you into a great nation. Remember his promise to David? I'm going to make your, your kingdom will, will, will never die. A, a king is going to come from you and his kingdom will last forever. And he will sit on your throne for all eternity. Those are the, I mean, that's David. Uh, Matthew starts with Abraham and David. The, the, those are the, the guys who get the great covenants and, the, and those great promises. And, and God could have, you know, he could have taken that back. I mean, these people gave him plenty of opportunities to. He could have wiped out this family and started over. He could have chosen the most righteous and attractive and noble people to preserve the line of his, his righteous one. He could have chosen Joseph over Judah. He could have chosen David's honorable wife, Abigail, over the wife of another man. At the very least, he could have hidden these people or left them off the list. Jesus could have entered history any other way, but he doesn't. He doesn't go around the sins of his people. He doesn't try to hide the sins of these people. He comes right through them. And by coming through this twisted, mixed up, unrighteous family, God identifies with them. I mean, Jesus is part of this family. God God did not say, listen, you have to become more like me before I come to save you. He did not say that to his people. He became like us. He breaks through history as a member of a very dark, dysfunctional family with a very shady past, and he redeems them. And Jesus takes their sin as a judgment on himself, and he paid for it all on the cross. And the reason I think that God enters through this family is simply to prove something once for all, that God is faithful when we are not faithful. I mean, think about this one. Why Matthew? Why does Matthew get to be the one who starts the New Testament? Why, why, why does Matthew's genealogy stand out? Luke also gives us a genealogy, and he traces Joseph's family line, not Mary's. And there's a lot of, there is a lot of overlap. Luke doesn't mention a single woman. So why does Matthew? Well, guess what? Matthew had a label too. Matthew was a tax collector. And that was not a good label to have if you were a first century Jew. He was despised by his people. Tax collectors were in a category of sinner all by themselves. They were labeled as traitors, greedy. They were deceivers. 
They took advantage of people. And then one day, Jesus comes up to Matthew as he's sitting in his tax booth. And he says, hey, Matthew, tax collector, I'm looking for some followers, so stop cheating your people, clean up your act, and I'll be back in a few weeks and see how you're doing. Maybe then you'll be ready to follow me. Is that what Jesus did? No. Jesus goes right up to this crooked man sitting in his tax booth, and he says, Matthew, come follow me, just as you are. And Matthew immediately gets up, he leaves his old life behind, and he follows Jesus. And Matthew's life is never the same. In fact, later on, I think it was probably the same day, Jesus is sitting at Matthew's house at a table having dinner. It's a big party. Matthew has all his friends over there. His house is full of tax collectors and all kinds of other people with bad reputations. And guess what Jesus says to this group of people? In fact, the religious, there's some religious leaders. The house would have been been like an open courtyard and there would have been people around and there were some religious leaders looking and seeing this other rabbi who's sitting with with these very disreputable people. And they, and they accuse, they're like, they're like, who is this guy? Who is this guy? Who is this, what kind of rabbi associates with the, these kinds of people? They're questioning Jesus' integrity. And you know what Jesus said? He said, for I have come to call not those who think they are righteous, but those who know they are sinners. And guess what? That's what Matthew's gospel is all about. That's what every gospel is about. Grace for sinners. And that's why I can think of no better way for Matthew to start his gospel than with this genealogy because it shows us that when God makes a promise, nothing and no one can stand in God's way. No amount of brokenness is beyond God's healing. No amount of failure and scandal is going to keep God from finishing what he started. His love and his promises are unstoppable. And that means that if God has started something in you, he is going to finish it. His grace will win. He is going to be faithful. And how do we know that? Here's how. Because Jesus did not come from a long line of saviors. He came from a long line of sinners. And to be a member of Jesus' family, you don't have to be a savior. You don't have to be great. You don't have to have a clean record. You just have to know you're a sinner. And all you got to do is turn your life over to Jesus and say, Jesus, you are my king. Take my sin. Take all of me. And at that moment, Jesus makes you a member of his family. He adopts you. You did nothing to earn that. He just adopts you. Because of sheer grace and love. And once you're in, you're in. And to be a member of Jesus' family, you just need faith. Faith in the amazing grace and sacrifice of Jesus Christ. So now you know the family record of the king of all creation. A king who knows what it's like to come from a long line of disappointing people. A king who identifies with sinner, with sinners. A king who knows what it's like to have your closest friends turn their backs on you. A king who knows what it's like to be hated. A king who knows what it's like to suffer. A king who can sympathize with you, even in all of your weaknesses. A king who was willing to die for you so that you could be healed in every way.
That's my king. That's the kind of king I want to rule my life. I don't want a king who's going to punish me every time I break his law. I need a king who will forgive me. I need a king who knows me. I need a king who will go to war for me. And that is who Jesus is. He's the promised king and his kingdom will never end. Are you living in his kingdom? Are you living under his rule or are you living however you want to? Do you worship him? Do you follow him? His kingdom will outlast every other kingdom. His kingdom will outlast America and every other kingdom that exalts itself. Are you a citizen of his kingdom? The kingdom of God breaking into our world to rescue sinners is what Christmas is all about, and that's what we're celebrating this season. Jesus Christ, the promised king, has come. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you that you are good. You are the only good God. You are the only true God, and you have sent your righteous one, Jesus Christ, to die for us, to adopt us as sons and daughters, to know you and to have peace to have peace reign in our lives. God, we pray that your gospel would be clear, that your gospel would be preached through our people, that we would tell others about this good news so that they can know you, so that they can come under your rule, Jesus. You are such a good, gentle King, Jesus. You are powerful, you are mighty, you are, you are so merciful and patient and gentle as well. And we are here to worship you today. We are here to honor you and to surrender our lives to you. Jesus, rule over our lives in power and grace. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. All right, before I let you go today, I wanted to give you an update that we haven't talked about this in a little while. As most of you know, we've been looking for a pastor of worship and mobilization for about a year now. And about a month ago, we had a candidate here who we were really excited about, and uh, his name was Andrew Goff, and he, uh, God made it clear to him that he was supposed to stay at the church he's at. So he decided to stay at the church he's at, and uh, he and I started a friendship, and we're still getting together, and, and um, it's been good getting to know him. But right now, we have no candidates. We're still um, we're, we're anticipating that at the start of the year, we might see some more candidates and get to know some more people. Um, but I do have an exciting update to share with you. We have a young man in our church um, who is in my small group, and I've gotten to know him. They started attending, his family started attending our church uh, back in January, and he is a, a former worship pastor, and uh, he's a gifted worship leader. You guys have seen him lead up here a couple times, and he has offered himself to our church as an interim uh, worship director. And so I'm going to have Josh Zabel come up on stage. <laughs> Along with um, our elders as well, if I could have our elders come up on stage. And we're going to pray over Josh. He's going to be officially installed as our interim worship director in January. And that means he's going to be leading worship uh, a couple times a month and doing the scheduling and also just overseeing the ministry and offering leadership to the rest of the worship team. And um, we're all super excited about that. Uh, Josh has been a huge blessing to us. So uh, thank you for taking this step. And um, we're excited for you. And we're going to pray over you now. So if you wouldn't mind kneeling down.
Oh, sorry. Got a straggler. <laughs> I was wishing, telling Bree we'll be praying for her too. Oh, yes, absolutely. Father God, we thank you so much for bringing Josh and Bree and their three sons to our church. We thank you, God, that you always know what we need before we do. And you're always working behind the scenes. Even when we don't see you working, God, you're working. And you are working in Josh's heart for a while um, to take this step before we even realized it. And here he is at just the right time. And we're so thankful, God, that you, that you always provide for our needs. And we're so thankful that Josh is here and available and, and ready to lead and um, to bless our church, to continue to strengthen our worship culture and uh, make us a church where people can be free to worship Christ and um, to grow in our affection for Jesus every single week. So God, we pray for Josh. We pray for his family. We pray for Bree and the boys. We pray that you would bless them, that you would protect them, that as Josh leads, you'd give him wisdom and discernment. God, that you would surround him with people who can support him and encourage him because leadership is hard. And we ask, God, that you would bless him in every way, that you would bless his leadership, that you would bless his abilities. God, and as a church, we would be stronger because, because of Josh's uh, gifts and his willingness to serve. And we pray all of these things in Christ's name. Amen. 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 Thanks, brother. At this time, I'll have you all stand, and I want to give you the benediction this morning from the end of the Gospel of Matthew. And by the way, next week, we will pick up where we left off. We'll finish up chapter one of, of the Gospel of Matthew as we continue in our series, The Promised King. But Matthew ends his Gospel with an amazing commission that Jesus gave to his disciples, and I'd like you to take this to heart as we prepare to leave here today. Jesus came and told his disciples, I have given all authority in heaven. I have been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I have given you and be sure of this. I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. I hope you have a great week. We'll see you next Sunday. Hey, Pastor Dave, thanks again for listening to this message. We want you to know that what you just heard is a glimpse of what happens on Sunday mornings, but you know, the church is so much more than what happens on a Sunday mornings. Coming to a service is, is just a slice of who we are and what God is doing in and through us. So we would love to get to know you and let you get to know us. And maybe the best way to do that is come to one of our services, but you can also go to our website and fill out a contact form and one of our pastors will follow up with you very shortly. Until then, we hope you have a great day and thanks again for listening.